So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection with your hosts, Rico Shields and Jean Victoria Norlock. Bringing your inner light to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this Tuesday edition of Everyday Connection. As usual, I'm Rico Shields, and I have here with me Jane Victoria Narlock. How are you, Jane? I am fantastic, Rick. So excited about tonight. How are I'm, you? I'm very excited. I I just felt you would be. Uh, yes, yeah, fellowship to one server on the line. Another. <laughs> well, and you just love it when we have authors on, and uh, because you can commiserate. I I mean, share stories. <laughs> What we do. So, shall we uh, have a shout out to our to our friends over there at Inner Child? We should. Uh, um, and, uh, tonight in the chat room, apparently by Janet, who just popped in, I guess, to say hey. Um, so hi to the Inner Child family. As usual, we love you, and we appreciate everything you do. If you guys don't know about them yet, if you're new to the show, they're our extended family of creators and embracers of love and life. Um, If you are a creative being of any sort, shape, size, uh, it's it's just a great place to hang out. They're so into helping to empower people and let them know how amazing each individual is. So uh, that's innerchild.ning.com, and they have some amazing stuff going on over there right now. We have amazing stuff going on over there right now. They, uh, Bill of Inner Child has Inner Child Press, which is a publishing company. And uh, uh, so in combination with that and quite a few other folks, we've put together this World Healing, World Peace Poetry Contest 2012. Uh, There is a website at exactly that, World Healing, World Peace Poetry 2012.yolasite.com. Y-O-L-A-S-I-T-E dot com, that, where you can find all the entry details. But get over there and check it out if you uh, if you write any sort of poetry, because the deadline is the end of the year. And um, there's some great prizes. There's going to be three uh, so-called grand prize winners, because we don't believe in putting one in front, I guess. Um, and um, they're going to get some fantastic stuff, huh? Yeah, yeah, they get um they get copies of the book. They get um every single poet who puts in a poem is going to be part of the anthology, which is totally cool. Um and and the prize winners, I, I mean, the people who have put on this competition have done their legwork. So they've run around and they've talked to a whole bunch of different um radio shows blog talk and otherwise, like actual on-air radio shows. These guys have done some serious legwork for the the contest winners. 
so that there's going to be a, a massive promotions and marketing campaign um, after the launch of the the poet book. So it's it's just cool. It's it's an all over cool project. It's international. Mm-hmm. It's about world healing, world peace. You just can't get any more exciting than that. It's fun. Absolutely, and and to get your a book of your poetry published, the three prize winners get a book of their poetry published, cover design, layout, the whole thing, um, radio shows, just amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, as Gene said, everybody gets published. There's going to be an anthology. I think it's uh, March or April it, uh, to coordinate with the United Nations thing on world peace. And um, it's just cool. It's very, very cool. And anybody out there looking about thinking about self-publishing or you don't know if that's the right thing or if it's for you, uh, go check them out and Inner Child because they'll give you the straight answers. And um, and they are really, well, author-centric over there. From their split to, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've done any looking around, but they pay 75-25 split. But the seventy-five goes to the author, and uh, as opposed to the other way around, as many of them that I've seen. So yeah, uh, most authors will tell you that's absolutely unheard of in the business, um, especially if you're going with bigger publishing companies. Uh, you know, which is great. You sell a million copies, okay? A penny coffee, it's not such a bad deal. But uh, you know, I mean, it, it really is. It's not just about the money either, Rick. As as an author myself, um, it, I've got to say, it's about your um, creative freedom, really. And and Bill is an artist and an author, so he's not going to step on your toes. He's going to help you, to empower you to do it your way. And that is what's most important when you're publishing something. You want to it's your baby. This is something that you have. This is a birth of something that's from inside of you, deep, deep inside of you. And you do not want to just hand that to somebody who's going to take control over it. You want to have control over how it's presented to the world. Bill will honor that. So it's, you know, that's a really important element as an author. Go check them out. Go check them out. Good, good, Go check folks. And and I do want to shout out to uh, Janet and Jordan in the uh, chat room with us. We have four callers on the line, uh, all of whom have their hand up. So I, I, we're going to have some questions <laughs> later. Waiting. Just a reminder, you press one to raise your hand. You can also press one again to lower your hand if you don't have a question or if your question's been, been handled. But be patient with us. We will take some questions in the second half of the show. Uh, but first, now that we have gotten through the guest patience test, we have right here with us Peter Canova. How are you, Peter? Good evening. Nice to be with you guys tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. It's just a, a thrill for you to be here. And Well, Jean already said she was excited. Absolutely. Of course. What? Have you looked at what he's writing about these days? I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. right up my alley. Right up your alley um, over there. So before we, we get to the typical question, Peter, just to let you know, um, on the cover of my first novel um, is the pendant that I wear faithfully, um, every day that was handed down to me and is, is uh, a family heirloom, so to speak, handed down from grandmother to granddaughter. I mean, it represents the Black Madonna from Poland. So we have lots to talk about, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. Um, yeah. So, so we'll start with my first typical question. Who the hell are you and what do you do? Well, uh, in my 
former life, I was a luxury hotel developer, and I uh, had some experiences uh, many years ago that kind of set the course of my life on uh, a journey of discovery uh, when I discovered that I could do intuitive medical readings. And after that, it kind of opened up a floodgate of um, different things that I experienced, like clairvoyance, clairaudience, remote viewing, uh, premonitions. And uh, these were things that uh, led me to question, you know, how is all this happening to me? Because I really had no indication prior to that time that, you know, I would be involved in any of this stuff. And uh, I, I just perceive that, um, you know, we must all be connected in some kind of an unseen energy matrix together. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to get the kind of information uh, that I was getting, you know, particularly when I was doing intuitive medical readings. And all I needed was a person's name, age and uh, address. And, you know, then I'd kind of go off and kind of recite the whole history. So there, there had to be some connection at an energetic level. And I, I really wanted to discover what that was. I, I have a Capricorn mind. So having the uh, intuitive experience wasn't enough for me. I needed to kind of get behind the nuts and bolts of how all this operated. So I, I you know, I spent really uh, a good part of my adult life uh, researching and, and, and meditating uh, on these subjects. And the, the, the books that I've written over the last few years are kind of a culmination of all that. It sounds like you've had quite the journey. Um, you've gone from from typical life to... Life, which is always fun, um, a little bit of a challenge, <laughs> I would say, for many. Um, so what was the first, like, really big indicator that you needed to, I mean, something must have clicked with you to make you figure out that you could do this? So was it a series of events, or did something big happen? Um, a lot of people talk about some kind of life-altering event that kind of makes them click into place of where they need to be that kind of allows them to, you know, be more truthful, stand on their own truth, and be who they are. Was well, I, I guess I guess I could say it was one event, but uh, there was a, let's say, a prelude to that act. Uh, I was always kind of, you know, as a teenager, I was one of these alienated teenagers, uh, just, um, you know, in the sense that I just felt there had to be more out there. Life just didn't seem all that satisfying and all that right. And, you know, I, I, I was always kind of questioning. So I guess it was this sense of unease that sort of laid the groundwork for my later experiences, even though I would not have had an inkling of that at the time. Uh, the one experience I had was when I was working with a group back in the 1970s, and we were working to, um, you know, develop a higher perception, what they would have called ESP back in those days. I don't think they use the term that much anymore. But um, when I did the very first uh, case reading uh, of a person uh, with a medical problem, and I just had somebody sitting opposite me with an index card that had the information on it, and they were only allowed to give me the person's name, age, and address. I remember the very first case I did quite vividly. And uh, the accuracy uh, of the information, the things that I saw really, really kind of astounded me. And that that's really what led me, on, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to sort of change my direction, because I went home that night really saying, you know, how can all this be possible? Um, and, and I started really thinking about it. And I said, you know, there's, there's got to be a whole 
I'm just seeing a tip of an iceberg and I'd like to see what lies underneath. And that was the, the search that I kind of went on uh, that I was telling you about. So I'm I'm curious about one thing and I'm going to bring it up early just because it's something that um, we end up exploring a lot of. Um, you, you're blessed with um, a very supportive wife who is also an amazingly talented woman herself. Did you meet her prior to this experience or is she somebody that you meshed with after? And I know that's kind of a personal question, but I'm curious because a lot of people find that um, once they start, start to follow and step onto the path and follow their passions, um, that they have to leave a few people behind and it's not so easy for family and friends to support them in their new chosen direction. Well, in my case, um, as far as my family was concerned, uh, I was a little bit quiet about it and I kind of um, opened that up gradually, uh, actually really more to my father than anybody else, not so much uh, not so much my brothers. Uh, one of my brothers uh, was, you know, I, I kind of started to expose this to him later on later on in life. Uh, as far as my wife was concerned, no, I met her, um, I really met her uh, after uh, these things uh, had, had, uh, had occurred to me. Um, and, you know, uh, the funny thing about it is that we didn't really talk much about this because I was still at the time, I was still very much involved in the business world. And most of the things that I did, uh, I wasn't, you know, near, I wasn't writing books. I wasn't doing the type of things that I, I, I do now to any degree back then. So uh, it wasn't much of a subject of discussion for us. And it wasn't until actually very late that I discovered that, um, you know, my, my wife was a, like a third generation psychic. And when she had a, prof a, a very serious illness, uh, her, her uh, I guess what you could say, her um, energy clock really wound up there. And uh, that whole aspect of her life started coming out, and that was actually the first time, and this was only in the last 10 years, uh, this was the first time that, you know, we really started, uh, you know, talking about our, our various experiences, believe it or not. It's absolutely incredible that you two um, fell into alignment without realizing um, what you were aligning to. <laughs> not, not, a um, thing, not a clue. That's that's completely awesome. That's amazing. Um, so thank you for for sharing that part. I know it's a little bit personal, um, but hey, it's called Everyday Connection. It's a very personal show. We get into the dregs of, of what's behind the scenes, um, but we feel that it's only fair to let people know what they're getting into. <laughs> well, if, if, that's the wor if that's the worst I can expect tonight, I think I'm okay. Oh, well, you know, I mean, the worst will probably come from Rick in this case because I'm, I'm a huge um, Mary fan, so I, I'm not going to hit you up with any hard questions in that category at all. So I'll leave that up to Rick. Oh, I'll try not. We'll see. I don't have any I don't have any uh, dagger questions in my pocket tonight. Or, or no, anything, that's okay. ask, I enjoy answering questions, so please ask away and feel free to ask anything you want. Well, maybe our guests can come up with something challenging for you. That would be awesome. Oh, <laughs> they, they often do with the questions. So, uh, you know, we'll be prepared. But, um, well, it does sound like a, a, an amazing journey, and I uh, I have to say that it's one that uh, we hear about from time to time. Uh, Gene typed into the chat room, alien teen, uh, because we've had we, – recently had some 16-year-olds on that feel alien right now and and uh, I certainly felt alien as a teen and that you know look this is just isn't right that something's missing or 
that something's not quite right. And uh, so congratulations on following through. I know about the having the pause in there while you jump in the business world and be who you're supposed to be. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that you you get to this state uh, a couple of different ways. One, you're either born alienated, or uh, the other way is that life kicks you so hard in the butt that uh, when you get down to that point where you can't take it anymore, you start to get a movement and a pushback to go towards the other direction. And a lot of people at that point begin their journey of discovery. Yes, it, it's uh, it's amazing how it uh, how it leads in there. So um, you were in the business world doing your thing, and then uh, now here we have uh, this amazing book. I've been teasing people in our in our promos about you know uh, some of the teaser information from your website. Uh, Tell us how did that? Uh, how did you get on that? As the I, I understand, is the first in a trilogy. Yeah, um, the trilogy is called the First Souls Trilogy, and it's about the first spirits to fall into materiality, into the experience of materiality. But really, these first souls are us. It's the story of the origin and the destiny and the purpose of all humanity, and their story is really uh, our story. And the first installment is called Pope Annalisa who is an African nun uh, who rises to become uh, the first female pope in a, a, near, a very troubled uh, near future world. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I did this because, well, it's a couple different things. The actual genesis of the book itself, I was sitting in a screenwriting class you know, over a decade ago, 12, 15 years ago, I don't know. And um, the instructor challenged us to bring in a high concept idea, which means something Essentially, no one's really ever done before something totally unique and novel. Well, that's pretty hard to do in the literary world, as Gene probably knows, because almost everything is a little bit of a ripoff of something else. But because of the way my mind worked, being spiritually oriented, I started vectoring in on a, a train of thought. And I said, well, you know, we've never really seen a female priest uh, and certainly not a female pope. And uh, I had lived in Africa uh, for some years. And uh, for for that reason and for other reasons, I said, well, well you know, let's let's make her uh, let's make this an African nun. And uh, the story that uh, I I wanted to really tell was essentially um, the result of all my research and channeling channeled information. This book was really written through two streams: good old fashioned research into actual uh, historical documents and to uh, ancient spiritual traditions, quantum physics. Uh, and then uh, on the other side, I was getting a lot of information coming through um, that, um, you know, was uh, was stuff I was always able to verify in the outside world. I don't usually like to talk about channeled information that I, I have not been able to sort of, um, you know, verify uh, verify uh, in the, uh, quote, objective world, unquote. So it was really a combination of these streams. And I instead of doing a self-help book, which this could have been, I made the choice to go with a fictional work for a couple of reasons. There's a lot of people out there, like all the Hay House authors that are, um, you know, putting out the nonfiction self-help help books, and they're all doing a good job. So they didn't need, you know, somebody else like me coming along. Uh, but, you know, I'm a big believer that when you really want to learn something, you have to incorporate both your heart and your mind in the process. And I felt I could best do that through a fictional novel where I could engage people in the lives of the characters and in the action of the story, and it is a real page turner. Uh, and uh, that those um, those uh, 
you know, jewels of spiritual wisdom uh, would be interwoven uh, in, in, into the into the fabric of that story itself, and, and and that people could absorb that at you know whatever whatever level they were reading it. More than likely, at more than one level. Um, wow, this story sounds familiar. <laughs> Yeah, my 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 book same. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. You need to send me a PDF. Oh wow, you didn't just say that, did you? <laughs> On our show, um, I did show just say that. Um, no, I'm actually kind of fascinated by by your the progression of this. Um, so you were aware, fully aware of your channeling capabilities before you began writing. Did you? willingly integrate that into the writing of the novel or did it just naturally occur it naturally occurred and um it 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 happened in different ways at different phases of the writing because i started this book when i was still working and i was working a pretty grueling schedule i mean i was traveling all around the world and i didn't have a whole lot of time so my writing was usually on you know 12-hour airplane flights or uh, uh layovers at airports and things like that um but um the the um during there was a period of time when my wife uh became quite ill and i took off a year from work in order to take care of her and probably the best writing and 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 the most um uh, the most incisive um channeling uh, took place during that period of time and and i think that's because i was in a high emotional state uh what i find is that my best writing does occur when I'm in a high emotional state. Um, sometimes I even have to induce that. Sometimes um, when I want to inspire myself, I'll play a certain piece of music and put my earphones on, or I watch a scene of a, of a certain movie that was brilliantly crafted um, and that, that would affect me. Because at the end of the day, what I really believe an author needs to do is emotionally connect with his or her audience. And in order to deliver that emotional experience, you need a certain uh, power and a clarity in the writing. And, and in order to achieve that high degree of writing, I, I think you really have to be in a, at a certain emotional pitch. At least that's the way it works for me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think I could ever put pen to paper if there was an emotion involved. Um, I, I have to have an emotional attachment to the story, to the characters, to the events to the just the whole vibration of of the message. So I can totally understand. I think most artists would say the same when they're painting or creating music. Um so your wife getting ill actually awarded you an opportunity to be able to Am I am I hearing that right? Like your wife getting ill made you stop yeah. long enough to do this? Yeah, well, uh, no, I mean, I had already been already been in the process of writing the book, but I would say that the, the that the uh, it really started to take form, and and the best writing in the book occurred during this period of time when I I, I took off work to take care of her. Wow, certainly a, a emotion charged atmosphere, I should think. Uh, well, it it was because it was a, a, a it was a grave situation. It was a life threatening illness. And um, her story, her own story of how she overcame that, is the subject of a book that she's written, which I believe will be published shortly. It's quite an amazing story. And uh, you know, there were there there was, um, you know, it it it's what I would say to some of the listeners uh, is that this whole idea of contact with higher information, of opening up that channel, there 
the, the, the way it really has, it has to come about is by using both our left and our right brains, using both our heart and our mind, because the heart or the, the female side of us, the intuitional, the, the emotional side of us, is really the gateway to this higher experience. It's, it's the fuel. It's a, liken it to a rocket, okay? A rocket has two components in it. You have the fuel and you have the guidance system. The fuel is that female emotional part of us that has that passion, that desire, uh, the creative desire to, to know and to inquire. The, the, uh, the guidance system is that male side of us that has that analytical logic that, that directs and, 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 and gives, you know, gives, gives direction. So without the, without the guidance system, uh, you go around in circles. Without the fuel, you'll never get lift off in the first place. And using that, that, that combination uh, of, of, of those faculties um, is, I think, what really um, led me to these you know, experiences with higher information in the first place and uh, led me into the whole um, you know, channel of, of, of writing this book. Yeah, we talk about channeling here often. Frequently. I, I, well, I channel and uh, uh, Jean channels. Uh, her second book, you'll go along. There's actually a different type. It uh, goes into bold italics because in her notebooks where she was writing, her handwriting would change. But sometimes, and uh, don't want to get Jean started on labels and titles, it, it, it it's something everybody is. It's just us. It's it's not really something special. It's very special, but it's not unique. Everybody's got it. And if you just follow something you're passionate about, you'll be doing it. You know, it's not something you have to learn how to do. Everybody, everybody uh, has these these capabilities, and most of us, for most of our lives, it lies dormant uh, for various reasons. But um, when I when I, I I don't often talk about channeled information. To tell you honestly, I don't even really feel comfortable about it in a lot of ways uh, because uh, I've been around enough of these um, whole life expos to you know to just hear a lot of stuff and you know everybody's out there channeling something and you know a lot of the information may be correct but there's you know for the most part you don't really have a way of relating to that because it's such a subjective experience. So. The things that uh, the information that I was getting, I would always check it against historical records to see if the information I was getting had any analogs in history uh, and you know in the objective world. And that's where the research side and the quantum physics side you know came in because I would get a lead from my own channeling and I would have a vision of something and then I would go back and I would see you know where, are there any analogs for this out there in the real world and then and then when I was able to match those two up. That's what went into the book. So there's nothing in the book that is so subjective that someone would have to take it just on pure faith. Uh, but they can actually go back and they can actually look at it from uh, both a scientific or historical angle. Right. And it is one of my discomforts with the whole idea of channeling is that there seems to be a lot of people out there that if, if they're told it's channeled material, they just take it as truth somehow. Uh, and uh, uh, it's certainly not the way I, I certainly not the way I feel about it. That it's just you know just because you know so and so said it and said it was channeled, then oh it must be no. If it doesn't yeah. make sense, if it doesn't, if if it's something about something going on or something historical, like you said, go look. It you know there's anything wrong with that at all? 
Yeah, I think that the criteria you can use is is does it have do you perceive that it has a practical benefit? Because spirituality should always be practical at the end of the day. If it's not practical and it doesn't have uh, analogs or a use in in you know your your uh, your everyday life experience, then it's more like spiritual masturbation than spirituality. Because you can have Swami Rama Lama Ding Dong out there telling you all kinds of things, and uh, yeah, well, it may or may not be true, but I have no way of, of relating or knowing to that. You know, that doesn't really help a person very much. Absolutely. Oh, I love you. You just made Gene's day because guru is her favorite word oh, to hammer on. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, there's there's nothing more exciting for me to have a guest come on and say, listen, people, y'all need to start listening to your own wise hearts because you know what works and what doesn't follow that. Um, and on that note, before we get into um, the rest, I think maybe, Rick, are we up for a break yet? I don't know. Oh, yeah, we probably ought to do that. We could uh, play a song something and um, yeah well our friend jordan in the uh, chat room just typed in i wish i could channel and i have it on i have it on good authority that he does because he's an artist and (laughs) we're going to play some of his art right now right now Uh, and he has a song entitled it ain't too hard and that's kind of that channeling thing it it ain't hard you tell us whether you think he's connected or not (laughs) we'll (laughs) be back in about four minutes hang with us folks
If you try. Ain't too hard. Don't even really have to try hard. Oh, hi, folks. Deep inside. I'm telling you. Um, So that was Jordan, and uh, we love him. Yes, we do. He's an uh, accidental discovery here at Everyday Connection. (laughs) He popped in one night. (laughs) Popped in one night as a guest, listened to the show, and um, we hunted him down on Facebook. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Turns out he's a musician. He sent us some music, and we happened to fall in love with it. So we're going to keep playing him. Um, <laughs> you know, not all Jordan all the time, but we are going to keep playing them. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, it's not all David on the hang all the time either, but it seemed like it for a day or two there, a week or yeah, so. Sure. It's okay. Musical crush on my part. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, what do you say we uh, take a couple of questions? We have three callers uh, on the line, and uh, that. Uh, seem to have some questions they would like to ask. All right, let's let them do that. All right, so we're going to call her from 267, followed by 484 by 609. So area code 267, tell us your name and what's your question. Hi, my name is Jessica from Philadelphia. Hi. Uh, Can you hear me, Cliff? We can hear you. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Yeah, I was just listening to the show. I thought it was really cool that you guys were talking about, you know, things that were on my mind. And I, I have, like, a lot on my mind. Um, I was just wondering, where do you see my living conditions in the next, like, six months? Yeah. Jessica, I'm sorry. I don't do those type of readings. Yeah, we don't do that. Yeah, we really. don't do those, honey. So sorry, but uh, I'm glad um, you're enjoying the show. Your answer might come before the show's out. You never know. What I can uh, offer you, though, is um, I'm in a strong sense of um, it, it's it's really all about you, Jessica, and um, where you see your living conditions in the next six months. Um, and you're needing to make some decisions. And you have to follow your heart. And do what's right for you, and and not allow other people to to sway um, your choices and your decisions. Um, because really, you can't take care of anybody unless you take care of yourself first. I don't know if that helps you. I hope it does. Uh, yeah, it did. 
Thank you anyway. Great. Thanks so much. We'll uh, stay with us and listen to the rest of the show. Thanks. All right. Caller from area code 484. Tell us your name, and do you have a question uh, for Peter? Uh, my name is Marilyn, and uh, I have a million questions, but I want to know what, what type of question you most prefer. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not, I'm, like Peter uh, said, we don't really do psychic readings of, you know, uh, where where am I going to be or what job should I take or any of that sort of thing. But if you have a question about the book or the topic or the subject matter, uh, Peter's done a lot of research on it. Um, um, well, I had, um, I don't know if this is in the realm or not, because I can ask a different question or not, but I had a tough situation happen here at my house this week um, with my housemates, and I'm in a real quandary despite, you know, checking in with my intuition and so forth as to how to move that negative energy um, out of the house and um, make this into kind of a peaceful energy again. Somebody took something um, here at the house, and it's created a really tense environment for everyone because um, I can't accuse anyone. I'm not going to, but um, it's sort of like a whodunit type situation, and how do we move forward? So I don't know if that's appropriate. If not, I can ask something else. Again, that's more along the line of a of a of a reading type question, uh, psychic reading type question. Um, uh, I tell you what, if you'll if you'll uh, check on our website, there's a link there to uh, nesterspeaks.com, which is my website, and I would be happy to if you just drop me a line, I'll be happy to answer the question for you later. Um, again, uh, Peter in his book about uh, uh, the history of mankind and 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 um, the first female. Pope would be uh, more tonight's subject matter. I, I don't mean to disappoint anybody. We do have folks on that channel sometimes, uh, but that's that's not all we do by a long shot. Well, look, let, let me let me try and help the audience, listening audience uh, out here a little bit because we we didn't really get into too many specific questions to kind of clue them in. But uh, you know, the, the the things that I cover in the book relate to the sacred feminine. Uh, the uh, the early hit, the true early history of Christianity, the sa- the secret teachings of Christianity before they were uh, destroyed by the church. Uh, I get into a comparison of uh, ancient spiritual traditions with quantum physics, and I show the astounding parallels uh, about the two really saying the same thing about the true nature of our reality and the origin of human life. Uh, talk about um, uh, talk about evolution. Uh, from a spiritual standpoint, uh, talk about psychology, Carl Jung from a spiritual standpoint. Uh, those are the kind of things that I really uh, cover in the in the book. And, um, you know, if uh, people have uh, any questions about topics of, of that nature, I'm happy to answer them. Perfect. So um, just, a, just a reminder for everybody, you can... Uh, uh, drop your hand by pressing one, or raise it by pressing one, um, and um, along those topics, this is uh, there have been some things about you know religious conspiracy uh, lately, uh, but your book lately. is lately. Well, okay, <laughs> but you know a couple of films that have been out that everybody talked about that were perhaps not really entirely well-rooted in facts. 
that's all, of course, in dispute. But uh, you've you've taken your material and and while it is fictional, we don't currently have an African nun as pope. Um, <clears throat> but it's material based on a lot of research on your part, a lot of work on your part. It is. It is based on historical fact and research. And uh, let's just talk about the, the church for a minute. Um, there's a very interesting history to early Christianity, and that is that there were two Christianities. Uh, one was the outer church, uh, which evolved into the churches as we know them today, what you would call the Orthodox Christianity. And the other was uh, a mystical church. The, uh, this was the. This was. Um, made evident in the Bible itself when Jesus said in numerous passages to the disciples, unto you is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, but unto those without, these things are said in parables. So uh, you also have supporting evidence for two different teachings from the early church fathers, like Clement of Alexandria, who wrote in some of his letters that there was a secret gospel uh, that was composed by some of the saints for uh, those who, people who are spiritually mature to be perfected in the mysteries. And uh, we find uh, that there was a tremendous discovery in the deserts of Egypt in 1945 when they discovered a whole new set of Gospels that they've called the Gnostic Gospels. And the Gnostic Christians were uh, the very first Christians, amongst the very first Christians, and they uh, believed that they, they said in their, uh, their uh, Gospels and they described teachings in their Gospels uh, that showed that uh, Jesus was, uh, in fact, teaching um, a new revelation of a universal wisdom tradition that had been present in all cultures at all times throughout history. And that it was only the Orthodox branch of Christianity that eventually triumphed that represented a, a break in that chain of wisdom that separated the, the, the Western world, um, you know, from what had before that time been an almost universally accepted view of, of the, the human being and of, of the human spirit. Uh, if you want to, I'm happy to talk a little bit about what that tradition was, but let me, let me, just, let me just leave it at that point about early Christianity. Well, and uh, from the... Documents that were found, the Gnostic Gospels, um, uh, it would appear, and there's been a lot of uh, uh, scholarly works done on the fact that, that part of the motivation, uh, those teachings weren't universally just handed out to everybody, one. And two, there were women involved, and the church had a problem with women having any sort of anything, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's very true. What, what happened was that um, these, the, ancient, the ancient wisdom tradition, the, the, spiritual, the spiritual secrets, were preserved in a network of mystery schools that stretched all the way from India to the British Isles, and they were in communication with one another. And these were almost, you can think of them like an Ivy League academy of the spirit. Uh, they, uh, like, like uh, modern uh, universities, they wouldn't just take anybody. You had to be screened. You had to be viewed as an appropriate candidate. Uh, and you would go through several layers of initiations, graduating up into the higher mysteries. And uh, these mysteries were um, largely feminine orientation 
meaning that um, they they used those not only that there were there were women physically involved in it, but they used primarily those intuitive uh, faculties of the heart uh, in order to gain their insights, which was you know of course a feminine approach to spirituality, and the early leaders in Christianity. Uh, of this mystical branch of Christianity were uh, primarily women. Mary Magdalene uh, appearing to be the um, the head of this mystical church. And what happened was that when the outer church or the Orthodox Church was being persecuted by the Roman Empire, they decided the best way to um, to solve that problem was if you can't beat them, join them. So they tried to become the official religion of the empire and they were competing against other religions and it was such a patriarchal society back at that time that the romans would never take seriously uh any religious movement with so many women uh at at, at the the helm of the ship so they the, the, the these this outer church or the orthodox church began pushing the women aside and creating a hierarchical structure that was mimicking the roman empire with uh, priests and bishops and, you know, different levels of the hierarchy, and they became mostly men. And um, eventually uh, they wrote the women who were so powerful in the early Christian church almost totally out of history, either uh, eliminating their, their, their gospels or rewriting their gospels as, to make it look as if men had written them. Which right. leads us to well, we've got Bill's a, questions. Yeah, we have but, a couple of questions that Bill has here. Uh, his first, uh, I think, is good that it comes first. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, he'd like to hear your take on, um, I, I guess the you could say the Nag Hammadi library as a whole, but particularly on gospels uh, like of Mary, Thomas, and the uh, so-called Tibetan gospel. If you really understand what's going on in the Gnostic gospels. Um, and, and they are very hard to understand, very, very hard to understand. It, t- it took me years of background research to be able to read those Gospels in the original and understand what they were saying. Um, but once you get to that point, you're blown away by the information and the wisdom uh, that lies in those, in those scrolls. For one thing, um, this is when I discovered that you know, our modern theories of quantum physics, holographic universe, the Big Bang, parallel universe theory, these are all covered in the Gnostic Gospels. Of course, they don't call them by those names. You're talking about a culture that didn't have particle colliders and atom smashers and, you know, objective scientific instruments. But adjusting for the, the language of, of, of the culture of its time, it's very clear that these Gnostic uh, sages reached into the realm of higher information and brought back many universal truths, which are now being proved out scientifically in the world of quantum physics. So um, the, the other benefit of those Gospels is they, they presented a whole different light on Christianity. I mean, th- this is how we know that there was a mystical tradition here in the West that was very similar to Buddhism and very similar to Hinduism, because it came from the same tradition. Uh, as, as those religions did. And in fact, this universal wisdom tradition, again, it was, it was uh, the threads of this tradition appeared in every culture, in every land, in every major religion, modern or pagan, except 
in the West when the Catholic Church came in and destroyed, not only physically destroyed the Gnostic themselves, but destroyed and burned their works uh, so that we had no record of it except for these very lucky finds like uh, the Nag Hammadi Gospels, which were dug out of the ground in Egypt in 1945. Right, almost as if somebody could see the possibility of uh, things being lost and needed to be found again. Um, so that that leads beautifully into Bill's next question, um, which was, uh, can you talk about what you know or suspect on the motivations of the Nicene Council uh, and how that ties into the letters of Paul and their significance to Rome? The Nicene Council was the culmination of the process that I spoke to you about where the Orthodox Church was attempting to become the official state religion of the Roman Empire in order to end the persecutions. And in 325 AD, the Emperor Constantine, who was a pretty shrewd guy, was facing the military and political fragmentation of the empire. In fact, he divided the empire in two because uh, he felt it was no longer feasible uh, to run it from a single government in Rome, so he founded the second Rome, which was called Constantinople, which lasted a thousand years after the fall of the original Rome. But uh, Constantine uh, essentially saw Christianity as a great tool to unite the empire, because let's face it, there's nothing like a little dose of religion to uh, get the troops in line if you handle it the right way. And Constantine um, uh, selected Christianity, uh, and he, uh, but you know, being the good Roman that he was, he changed a lot of things around. Prior to Constantine's time and in the early centuries of Christianity, there was no single Christianity. There was no single version of the Christian story. Communities in Persia, Egypt, uh, Europe, they all had slightly different versions or you know, differing gospels um, relating the whole Christian story. So Christianity was very diverse in its early days. Constantine didn't want diversity. Constantine wanted uniformity. So he collected the bishops, all the bishops he could around the world at the time, and he stuck them in a room in Nicaea, and he said, you guys are going to write a creed and tell everybody what it means to be a Christian. And by the way, it's got to pass my approval, and if it doesn't, you're going to be in serious trouble. So essentially, um, Nicaea was a, uh, the triumph of the Orthodox branch of Christianity prevailing over the other Christian stories, the other views of Christianity uh, at the time. Uh, to become, you know, the only single way that you could view Christianity, and that was enforced by the Roman state. Right. And it, um, certainly in the, uh, what I've read of the uh, documents found there at Nag Hammadi that, and, and other works on Christian mysticism, you might call it, Gnosticism, um, there wasn't any sort of concept. There's a lot of concepts in the Nicene Council books that just aren't there, like you're going to hell if you don't behave and do what the church says. Well, you know, the, the real tragedy of the triumph of Orthodox Christianity, uh, as opposed to the, what, the, what the mystical tradition was saying, is that God was always external to a human being. In the Orthodox view, and this, um, this applies to Judaism as well because it really came from Judaism, in the Orthodox Judeo-Christian view, <clears throat> God 
is separated from humanity. Humanity was like a lump of clay, and God breathed life into it and kind of wound it up, and it went around and it sinned, and now it spends the rest of its life trying to get back in God's good graces, and everybody grew up praying to this, um, you know, kind of almost like an old bearded Roman emperor in the sky for mercy. Uh, whereas in the mystical tradition, it was a totally different paradigm. And that paradigm was that there is no separation between God and humanity except by perception, that the one spirit or God essentially broke itself up into many points of light or many points of consciousness in order to gain experience of itself, in order essentially to create mirrors to look, reflect or look back on itself. And no, that, oh, yeah. Sorry, I just, um, something that's been kind of, I've been sitting here silently for a minute. It could be argued, though, that that same information is is very readily available in the Bible as we know it today. I mean, any student of metaphysics or any student of, of spirituality on that level could read the Bible and recognize those parables as being in alignment with what you're talking about. Well, to some, you know, to some extent, but it, 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 it's, it's not nearly, uh, you would not nearly be able to draw the conclusions with any degree, degree of clarity, even from that kind of reading of the, of the synoptic Gospels, as you would from reading, let's say, the Gnostic texts. Right. Uh, it's, just, it's, just, it's just laid out with, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a much more encompassing, coherent story as opposed to sort of a fragmentary story that once contained truth but then was highly edited, which is the, the situation that you have in the Bible. So I, I don't disagree with you, Gene, but what I'm saying is I think it's a lot more fragmentary and I think it's a lot more concealed in the Bible itself to the point where people really can't see it anymore. Oh, I won't argue. And I think it's easier to see, you know, sort of hindsight is twenty twenty. If you're a student of metaphysics, you can look backwards at those and go, yes. Um, but then there's, just like someone might spontaneously write a book that has some um, higher wisdom in it, channeled information, whatever you want to call it, um, somebody might read those stories and spontaneously get it, and that might have been you know, one way that you would come to the attention of mystery schools, but, um, but I mean, for all practical matters, if, if, um, if the, the, the whole paradigm of humanity actually being expressions of, of God in material existence, as opposed to these creations from nothing, uh, had prevailed and people had understood that over the centuries as being present in the Bible, we'd have a very different world today. If the Gnostics, had become the prevalent form of Christianity and had joined hands with their Buddhist and Hindu cousins because the Hindus and the Buddhists, if you look at their text, they're still saying the same things. Uh, it, it would be a very different Western world that we see today. So even if a few uh, metaphysically oriented people can look back in the Bible and decipher these things, the fact of the matter is the vast majority of Westerners have never have never understood this uh, in the Bible. And, and if you tried to explain it to them now, they'd probably call it blasphemy. Many oh. many of them would for sure. Yeah, and I, the, the Nicene Council and the Church did a did a fantastic job. They were very you know, thorough. Let, mm. let me say let me just say this one thing because um, you have to be very careful when you have these conversations not to be uh, divisive about it. In this regard, um, I this truth in the Bible, and I I have fundamentalists who read my book and believe it or not they love the book, and the reason why is because myself and the book takes this attitude you it's a matter of perception and in the bible 
Um, if you let's say you want to look at, at, at certain spiritual truths, it's sort of like being at the base of the mountain and looking out in the valley. And when you expand your vision of the, the possibilities by reading these lost gospels and lost texts, it's like moving a little bit higher up the mountain and getting a little bit more of a panoramic view. So it's not necessarily it's not that the view from the base of the mountain is incorrect. It's just of a more limited perception. And in order to help us on our spiritual journey, it, it always helps to have these um, other gospels and other perceptions uh, available to us so that we can weigh them against our own spiritual thermometer and make a decision as to you know what we feel truth is and how we want to pursue it. I agree with you completely. Um, the the reason I brought it up though is because I I wrote two novels as well, and and some of them, you know, some of what I wrote about was was um, some people perceived to be a attack on Christianity, um, which it wasn't meant to be at all. Um, but it's because you know part of part of my background has to do with researching the Black Madonna and the Lost Gospels. Um, so I understand where you're coming from. But because of me being attacked for some of the stuff that I wrote, um, I, I learned to be able to explain in biblical terms some of these concepts that I was talking about and be able to look in, in the Bible and, and be able to point to you know examples that, that said, you know, this is what we're talking about, that, you know, God is within, not without. Um, and I think really, I mean, of all the teachings, that's probably, to me, the most important one. Um, you know, I, well, I constantly sort of like remind the, people, Jesus well, said, you two can yeah, move mountains. That's but, sort yeah, of the but, base supposition difference between the two. Well, yeah, but the, the, the statement in the Bible that Jesus made many times that the kingdom is within... Um, is not interpreted by um, most mainstream Christian groups as meaning that humans are of the same essence as the divinity. That is blasphemy to them. So, you know, you can sort of make those interpretations based on the Bible, but they will always be disputed. Uh, and they can be disputed. They're open for dispute because the way the Bible was redacted um, you know, it's it, it, it's just so buried over that you just can't get a clear picture of it. Whereas if you go to the alternative gospels, the whole not only is is not only do they make the statement that there is no separation between humans and the divinity, they show the whole chain of uh, of evolution of how that that spirit projected itself out and ultimately ended up in human form. But uh, it, it, it's like you said, it's sort of the view from. A little further up the the mountain, it's not, uh, you know, even though I mentioned there's one concept that's not found in in, in the other, it it doesn't in any way contradict really. Um, it it you can someone that studied the Bible could then go on and study these gospels and see them as coming as being a progression and not uh, that they don't they don't have to fight against each other. They go together. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 there's 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 a common ground. There's no question. But you know, the error always lies in the, the human mind, and, and it's sort of like this: there are fundamentalists who are so locked in 
to the literal Bible that if you don't use their exact terminology, but you're saying the same thing as they're saying without their exact terminology, they, their minds just blank out and they'll call you a blasphemer. On the other hand, you have uh, people in the metaphysical community who are so angry at what they perceive as the sins and the repression of the Catholic Church over the years are that when they could be bridge builders in terms of talking about, you know, higher perceptions, not necessarily contradicting one another, it ends up being like a church bashing exercise. So, you know, the fault always lies, uh, you know, within um, <laughs> within the within the medium of, of, of the human being that, that's expressing it. They're, these are all unnecessary things. But more often than not, you know, they end up falling into these um you know these these the, these these artificial categories where it looks like uh, things are are are, are uh, you know being combative in a dialectic rather than a process that could really be synthesized and under you know understood for a, a, a wider view. Well, I mean, the challenge is and always has been to find the commonality, um, the common vein of truth, and and to, like you said, bridge the gap, and. I mean, really, when you when you dive into this kind of research, it becomes very difficult to not see the value of bridging that gap and to be able to highlight those common. Right, and as you say, not are, not go to the poles of you know, well, this mysticism is blasphemy, or oh, you people have repressed us. <laughs> and well, you see, that's what my that's what my book was really all about. Because what Annalisa does, she does within the church. She 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 transforms the church from within. She doesn't bash it from without. And the fact that it ended up that way in the book is just an expression of what we're talking about here, which is that you know, as I did my research and meditation on all these subjects, and I encompassed a very wide view of different spiritual traditions and of all the different Christian traditions that once existed. Uh, what I, I really what I really saw is that, yes, there is a commonality there. It's a matter of perception. It's a matter of, of uh, point of view. And it's a matter of uh, where you want to stop or what you want to accept along the journey. You know, life is a spiritual journey. And if you're on that highway, uh, you run into a series of way stations, let's say, or bus stops. And uh, you go in there and, um, you know, the, 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 the mainstream churches will want you to punch your ticket there because they'll say, we have the be all and the end all the truth, so don't leave the building and stay here. But the real um, spiritual warrior will take what they can from that and they'll continue on down the road and they'll use each uh, stop or way station as a way to um, learn and, and grow and go on. So if we viewed our, our life as a spiritual process, that way, not something stagnant that got set in concrete 2,000 years ago at the time of Jesus and set in cement and never changes, but we leave our minds open to the possibility of examining um, other ways of looking at the Western Christian experience. It, it, it just, it's so liberating, and it really opens up a lot of possibilities for our growth. Right, because it, 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 trying to take anything to, to me, that's two thousand years old and make it be static. We don't even really understand in the parables what how meaningful some certain thing they might talk about, you know, was to people, because they, our lives don't even resemble that. So we don't know how important a donkey or oil or it, it just doesn't go through. And then beyond any conspiracy or any group that decided we're going to stomp parts of it out in order to bring all these people together, which may be the only way he could keep peace at the time. And 
and you know better peace maybe but um you've had 2000 years of uh most of it people hand copying these things and and translating them and retranslating them and translating them for a king that would like it to slant a certain direction or it's 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 almost impossible to me. That's why uh, something like the Gnostic Gospels that places the emphasis the truth is inside you, like literally the truth is inside you, you are a, an expression of the divine, it, that you can apply in almost any time, you know, as opposed to, you know, 2,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 year old stories that don't make really sense to us the way they did to the people then. Yeah, and um, you know it's it, it, it's it's we really lost out in the Western world because you know again just to restate this um, the precepts or the axioms of this ancient spiritual tradition what they said was that there really is only one energy that one consciousness that underlies the universe which essentially is what quantum physics is saying these days and that um, but you know if if you have some entity that is everything, that is all-encompassing, then it can have existence and it can have being, but it can't have experience because only experience is only gained in contrast with something else. And that's why they said that, the ancients said that spirit essentially broke itself up into numerous points of consciousness. But it was an interesting process that they, they said that occurred. It was called emanation. And it was kind of like this. Think of a DVD. You have a DVD of an original movie, and then you make a copy of that, and a copy of that, and a copy of that, and so on down the line. Now, they all contain the essence of what was on the original DVD, but each version that goes on down the line has a little bit less clarity and a little bit less resolution. This is the same thing the ancients said happened when spirit decided to project itself out or project itself down, that the further spirit projected itself out from its source, the more it forgot or became ignorant of the source itself. And that forgetting or ignorance was limitation. It was limitation of the original consciousness. And it was that limitation of consciousness that created the, the separate beings. Because, you know, hey, how can something that's everything think it's something? How can, how can the, the, you know, the part become, think of itself as the whole? The only way, or, or the, the, the whole think of itself as a part, the only way that can happen is by the supreme consciousness limiting its own point of view and projecting itself then downward to create the appearance of, 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 of individual being. So if we really and truly pursued this line of thinking and inquiry, if we had had this from 2,000 years ago, that all we have to really do is remember because we're part of that essence that created everything. We're part of the light that created this universe. And all we have to do essentially is remember and trace that, that light back to its source we would have a profoundly different world today than the view that prevailed from Constantine's Nicene Council. We absolutely would, but then I'd argue that we we would have missed out on a lot of the experiences. And I mean, I I'm I hate playing the devil's advocate, but I'm going to do that. Um, hey, if I were God, which I am, and I want to have a human experience, and I want to experience all the diversity and the contrast that I can, then. I'm going to do my best to forget that I'm God. It just makes sense to go down that road. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, I think it, it, it's, it does. Well, think and it's an almost, awesome opportunity for growth. Almost split the planet up and, and take both roads and see what happens. 
Well, yeah. You know, it, well, it, 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 we, well, of course, the planet is split up because we have such a diversity of views. But, um, you know, you're absolutely right, because um, the Hindus have an interesting saying, which is that this world is God's playground for fooling himself. And the the um, the whole purpose uh, of, of existence was to forget and to relearn, but to bring that experience while you're learning back to the source. So people often, you know, we talk about in the Orthodox Church, the state of humanity being a fallen state. In the, in the ancient spiritual tradition and the Gnostic view, it would be just the opposite. We would be viewed as the fingers of God touching the face of this world, spiritualizing the material and bringing the experience of the material back to the spiritual. You see, so a human being, in its essence, is a bridge between spiritual and material experience. And that's a glorified state, not a fallen state. Absolutely. Oh, it's absolutely awesome and something to celebrate, in my opinion. I, I happen to like the human experience. I think it's rather fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm enjoying this. It's Yeah, sometimes it can be difficult. But, hey, the getting over stuff is really cool, too. Um, we have an so, excellent question for you in the chat room. But why don't we take a, a, a short yeah. break? First. Take a quick break, and then we'll get to that question, because uh, I'm interested to see what you have to say about this one. Yeah, I am too. It's a, it's an interesting question. Uh, how about some hang-playing hedge monkeys? Uh, that would be awesome. David Wapples and his hedge monkey friends. Well, he's, he's one of the hedge monkeys too, so um, we'll be back in uh, just a few, folks. Enjoy the music.
All right. Welcome back, everybody. Now, again, that was David Wapples, or I hope I'm saying that right, and the Hang Playing Hedge Monkeys. So, we had a question. Jean? Um, Jordan would like to know, Peter, what you think about the Bible codes and the end time predictions. Well, you know, I have to tell you honestly, I I um I I have I, I have a little bit of knowledge about the Bible codes. It's not something that I've spent a lot of time on. Uh and uh, the 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 end time predictions um you know, it depends on which ones you're talking about. I've seen a bunch of different end time predictions from like, you know, Revelation in the Bible to to some other things. Um uh, I I think that um a lot of end time predictions can be accurate in a sense. And what they're usually accurate about is ending a certain, is not the end of the world, but they're more like allegorical for ending a certain phase of human spiritual or psychic development. And it seems like they're talking about the end of the world, but you know, they're actually, they're actually really, you know, talking about uh, ending a certain age. You could say in some ways, for instance, um, you know that uh, when Jesus came in, uh, you know that uh, it was the uh, and the you know the tr- transition from the Piscean to the Aquarian Age, and there was a lot of upheaval in that time. And so, uh, what I'm saying is, I think there's uh, some truth in end time um, predi- predictions or revelations. But one thing about the nature of prophecy is it's a very slippery slope. Um, prophecy is. Um, can be interpreted in so many ways at so many levels. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of Hollywood type prophecies that come true at a gross physical level are often not apparent until well after, you know, until, um, you know, well after the time of the prophecies. And then, you know, back and then at that time, you're looking at everything through different eyes to begin with. So it's, 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 it's very, it's very difficult, but I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the Bible codes itself. Uh, clearly there was some coding going on. Uh, in the Bible, the, the, the gematria, the use of uh, numbers uh, as substitutes for uh, the Hebrew letters, uh, that's clearly, clearly a phenomenon that, that was uh, at play uh, in the Bible itself. But um, that book itself that came out uh, that first um, started uh, basically deciphering messages out of the Bible code, I, I really can't speak to that. It's really not kind of the subject of, of, of my, uh, my field of research. You're cool. I love honesty. Um, not my field of research. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, we all have opinions. You can make opinions off of the glancing blow of knowledge I have of Bible codes. It just—it was never something that held my attention very long. Um, yeah, it came my way too, and I, and I gotta tell you, um, other than the fact that. I looked at it and went, yeah, okay, I can see there being codes in the Bible. Um, The rest of it just didn't resonate with me. It didn't vibrate with me. And I'm more of the mind that it's really all about the experience. And regardless of what prophecy says, I think it's all about human choice and what we decide right now in this moment to do. Um, You know, we... we, And and there can be many paths that get you to the same place because we're all the same thing. Um, and and I think the Gnostic tradition would have recognized that as opposed to the official 
you know, church line of you follow, it wasn't even so much follow what Jesus taught, it was follow our interpretation of what Jesus taught, because uh, we're all going to speak in Latin so you don't understand, uh, they did in Rome, but, you know, um, of you do it this one way or you're out. That, it's not a common thing. thread. The tricky thing about prophecy is what can prophecy be other than a reading at some level of the mass mind thought? Because collectively we shape this world. It's our thoughts, uh, and you know, and that that uh, that collectively have um, you know shaped this world and uh, shape our, our our history and our future. And that's always subject to change. Uh, even astrology, uh, you know, think their destiny written in the stars. Even these things are subject to change. So, you know, when, during the, when I had certain premonitions, um, I realized at the time that I was picking up a, uh, best way I can describe it is some trend in the ether, some, some glimpse of, of the direction of, 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 of the, you know, the primary tendency of the human thought at the time that might produce a certain result. But that, that's always subject to change because our, we change our, and our thoughts change and the course of events change, you know, around those things. So I never... To get in too deeply to all these issues of, of prophecy as, you know, divulged through various colds and Nostradamus and everything else. Because like I said at the beginning, I feel it's a little bit too much of a, of a slippery slope. I'm not saying there's not anything to it, but I'm, I'm just saying that there were other fields of, uh, of spiritual study that I found to be much more uh, rewarding and to tell you the truth superseded prophecy in any way because it talked about the really big questions of life. Right, and, and, and so often these things, even the people that wrote them, when they wrote them, said, you know, these are the visions that I see. And it would be difficult for us to understand exactly what that vision meant to them back then. It, it's Again, we get that historical interpretation thing about people we really don't know anything about. Uh, and, and it's... Uh, uh, I mean, everything's symbols, but it, it's all about what does the symbol mean to you. And uh, uh, and I think and I think you hit on it, Rick. I, I think that's the most important thing about prophecies or anything else. These things are all subject to being interpreted in many ways. And the real important thing is what does it mean to you? How does it resonate in your soul? And what does it mean to your your own growth and your own journey? And what you take away from it may be different what, from what I take away from it, but that doesn't negate the value that it had to either of us. Right. And uh, Jordan followed on. So prophecy can be implanted in us to shape our beliefs and thus manifest, become a, sort of a self-manifesting, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, yes, if you can make a huge group of people believe that exactly some, some certain thing's going to happen, then it has a higher probability than if they don't believe it. Uh, certain things, I don't think, you know, well, are easy to manifest, but, uh, you know, if you really believe 2012 is going to be chaos and the end of the world, your life could get pretty chaotic. <laughs> It's Which brings us choice. into the power of of the collective consciousness and into um, into the, the um, metaphysical elements. Well, and, and when of you spirituality. get you get into that field of possibility, which then has, also has field of probability and 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 this is where 
uh, the leading edge of quantum physics really is coming full circle back to the, you can relate it almost directly to these uh, mystical traditions. Well, this is a great segue, and let, let's talk about this whole thing about, um, you know, shaping the, the collective world prophecy and everything else, and let, let's let's ground it in terms of talking about uh, quantum physics, because it, it's actually quite, the parallels between quantum physics and the ancient spiritual tradition are, are really quite fascinating. You know, quantum physics, like the Gnostic text, is a really dense, complex subject that you could spend a whole show on. So I'm going to give us the, you know, the simplified version here and, uh, you know, what might be most important to this conversation. But there, there's, there's two branches of quantum physics. One is relativistic physics, which is the physics of very large objects like planets, galaxies, solar systems. This was the physics of Albert Einstein. Then you have quantum physics, which is the physics of the very small, minute objects atoms, molecules, and subatomic particles. Now, at the turn of the century, they made some astounding discoveries in both branches of physics that kind of worked toward the middle. Albert Einstein came out with his famous relativity equation, E equals mc squared. And what that equation really says is that matter and energy or light are interchangeable forms of the same substance, that what we perceive as matter begins as light and it dissolves back into light. Now, on the other side of the ledger, the quantum physicists found the same thing. When they delved really deep into the subatomic world, the deeper they dug, what they found out was, guess what? There is no such thing as a particle. Those things that we all learned in, in you know, junior high school, atoms and molecules that make up the, you know, supposedly solid, the so-called solid world that we have, um, they, 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 they don't exist at, at the most fundamental subatomic levels, what exists are waves of light, and that these waves of light contain all potential and all possibility. Now, at a certain point, they collapse into particles, and they go from the world of potential into the world of actuality. They essentially become locked into a particle, and the way that happens is actually through the medium of a conscious observer. Um, so when they did these experiments, in, in early quantum physics, um, when they were not observing the the, um, the the in the experiments, these these objects behaved as light waves. But when they started to measure and observe it, the same light waves would collapse into particles. So it, it was called wave-particle duality. It's both a particle and a wave at that point. And the way it happens is because it was observed by a conscious observer, it went from the realm of potential into the realm of reality. Now, that is the basis for co-creation. The stuff that we hear in New Age groups about, you know, you are a co-creator, you create your own reality, well, it sounds, sounds like a lot of BS sometimes, but there is an actual scientific basis to it in collapsing the quantum wave by human consciousness. And, and so the long and the short of it is this. The, the, the quantum physics started changing the, the whole conception of what a three-dimensional solid universe is and they said you know what this universe isn't solid it, it, what, what we have is we have light frequency images so the dog the cat the tree they're not really they don't really have an objective as, as existence apart from an observer because what we have are light images light frequencies that's how all reality starts off of is light waves and light frequencies and these light frequencies are blueprints 
of all the physical objects we have, dogs, cats, people, whatever, that exist in their own world that was described incidentally by Carl Jung. Uh, he called these these objects archetypes, and he said that they dwell in a dimension where they have a reality, a, a, a separate reality of their own. And the quantum scientists are saying that it's these images that really uh, form the basis or blueprint of our 3D world, and it's through a process of us observing that these light wave images are converted by our, our, our brains and spit back out as three-dimensional images or objects. So, Yes, there is a basis to co-creation, and yes, the way you think and the way you feel about things will uh, will use that power to manifest things in certain ways. And certainly, if you have large groups of people collectively looking at things the same way, those that you know reality tends what we know as reality tends to shift in that direction. I know it sounds like science fiction, but this is actually straight out of the books of quantum physics. It, it actually it. In a spiritual sense, though, it makes perfect and utter total sense. If you talk about each individual being an extension of the source creator God and each individual being an extension of that God having an experience of physicality, when those extensions unite their intention, then you get manifestation. It it just makes sense to me. It yeah, well, now, now let me tell you something really cool. There's there, There's a growing perception in in the quantum physical community uh, about the holographic universe, that we live in a holographic universe, and that actually what we perceive as our world is actually a giant hologram, kind of like being on the, uh, you know, the holodeck of Starship Enterprise where the crew goes in for recreation and they can go to any time and place in any historical character and virtually interact with them. Yeah, can I say computer, I want a million dollars and it'll just appear? Like I... <laughs> Maybe one day, who knows? Um, but uh, the, the, the cool thing about it is, look, look at how a, ho a hologram works. A hologram happens when a, a single beam of light is split. Let's call it a laser beam. And the, the second beam from the split goes off to the side, and it, and it bounces off an object. Let's call it an apple. The original beam loops around, and it merges with the light of the second beam reflecting off that object or apple, and it forms what's called an interference pattern. And it, it, think of an interference pattern when you throw two pebbles into a pond and the waves start rippling out and then they merge together. Where they start merging together, it's called an interference pattern. Well, the light forms an interference pattern from the two split beams coming back together in the same way. And when it's projected onto a medium, you have a 3D image of the apple. The interesting thing about the hologram is no matter how much you cut it up, every minute portion of that hologram will contain the image of the whole apple. Now, the, what's fascinating is the ancient texts describe this holographic process on a cosmic scale because, remember, we said that there is one energy or one source of light, and it splits itself up into numerous other points of light. So on a cosmic scale, the one energy splits itself off, and off to the side, it forms a soul mind, a soul, a, 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 a separate soul. The reflections of that separate soul come around and merge with the original light and form the interference pattern and collectively project out the whole physical material world, what we perceive as the material as the material world. So this is how the uh, ancients say that the, the world was uh, the world was formed, and it's an exact description of how a hologram works. 
it's 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 always been interesting to me to point out that uh, as you described it the the laser beam has to be split in two yeah and if you don't split it into then it doesn't come back together and form the interference pattern and it, it, it there's an exact reason why that's so folks but again we're 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 not going to teach physics tonight but it everybody's what is this duality thing why this split you in making creating the hologram there has to be the split the the one light has to become two and then come back together and become one so to speak in order to create the interference pattern well doesn't that sound like all those mystical traditions of at one point the soul had to split itself into male and female in order to experience Light, reality dark female male good evil no. it's um, just how you make a hologram folks you right have duality contrast uh, yeah we, we talked earlier about how something that's everything has to split itself up into other things to have a perception of something exactly you know, and, absolutely yeah and, and, you know. and so, if you and, take and, that and the really really cool thing about this guys is that an exact description of this occurs in a very famous uh, piece by Plato called The Allegory of the Caves. Now, Plato um, was uh, clearly uh, had a Gnostic background and, uh, and was very revered by the Gnostics. And in The Allegory of the Cave, Plato said, look, here's what reality is like. We are like people in a cave who are chained to face a wall one way. We can't turn backwards. We can only face that wall. And there's a light shining behind us. We can't see that light. But what we see is the reflections of our own shadows that the light creates off the wall. So we think those shadows are reality. But we don't really see the true reality that lies underneath back in the light because of our limited perception, because of being chained to only face one way, i.e. think one way. You see? So Plato gave an exact description of, uh, of, of the hologram and the holographic universe in the allegory of the caves 2,500 years ago. Yeah, it, it, as you said, there was... This knowledge was much more universal than it, than it is today wow. in the it's been mystical. around for thousands of years, yeah. really. Traditions. Uh, we, we, regressed. we regressed. Right. We in our knowledge but, went into the dark ages. Yeah, yeah, with a reason. For a reason. For a reason. There's a good um, quote I so like. With regression comes progression. Yeah. I know that sounds weird it, and twisted, but I mean, you have to go backwards before you can go forwards. Um, well, and, 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 and again, this. How do you know it has to exist? Well, because it does. You know, God doesn't create junk. So the two paths, it, it, if you were the eternal isness, why not take them all? So that here, there you have it, Earth, sort of. And, and, and you know, in the original Judeo-Christian viewpoint, the, the devil was not this being with horns and cloven hoofs. The devil was the angel of opposition, and it was said that opposition was built into the very fabric of life in order that we may grow beyond it and learn. Uh, it, it's kind of like, remember we talked at the very beginning of the interview, and we said how, you know, sometimes people really begin their spiritual journey in enlightenment by being knocked down so far by adversity that they just say, hey, enough is enough. There's got to be something else to this. And, and that, then that desire to overcome the suffering becomes so great 
that they propel themselves like a rocket along the spiritual path. You see? Right. And, and, and so, you know, um, Gene, picking up on what you said, uh, at least in the Western world here, uh, you know, perhaps that regression was something that, um, you know, we're now realizing how much we really lost and uh, how much people have really suffered uh, by this uh, lack of knowledge and perception over the years. And when people start to realize that, um, you know, they maybe they maybe they just, like I say, get up enough emotion to really, you know, get the locomotive steaming in the other direction. Well, I have to I have to point out that it would be very difficult for an infinite, all-knowing being who can manifest instantly anything their um, desire wishes to manifest. It would be very difficult for that being unless they put themselves into a position of being powerless to be able to learn things like compassion um, and and empathy. So, it, to me, again, it seems to make sense. To go through that process, um, but that's not to say that I've always been at peace with that idea. It, it took me, you know, a really rough road going through that to get to being at peace with that concept. And it, it's not maybe so easy for people to to grasp and embrace. But I think it's absolutely phenomenal that more and more people are coming out and speaking openly and and bringing together those commonalities and the common vein of truth that's in all these different belief systems so that we can see and begin our growth again and and experience the you know reuniting of well, our it's possible that if we hadn't taken the road that we wouldn't have the quantum physics experimental physical Look, it really is this way proof that we do. I mean, physicists get kind of weird when you start asking them about it and pressing them on the point because it, people view it as kind of crazy. What do you mean reality doesn't exist? But, it, you know, they can prove that a a particle of light, a photon of light, is in sort of both two places, equally equal opportunity for it to be in either of the two places until you look. The, the, courageous, the courageous physicists are the handful that will come out and actually be honest about the conclusions that they all know. And what it really tells us is that consciousness is the basis for existence, and reality is a top-down process where consciousness creates form, as opposed to traditional Western material science that says it's a bottom-up process where particles, inorganic particles, randomly collide somehow form organic particles, which in turn form more com complex organisms, which result in the human brain, which in turn results in, uh, you know, which in turn results in consciousness. So, I, I, I mean, I know physicists, and they'll, they'll go right up to the point where, you know, they, you see all the information is in front of them, and they'll accept all the weirdities and all the other stuff, but they just won't come out and say, it just shows that light and consciousness are the basis of everything that exists because they would be ridiculed. You know, so the scientific community is just as orthodox as the Catholic Church in its own way. It has the same dogma. It has the same stigmas that uh, you would experience, uh, you know, in, inside the Vatican. Um, there's an orthodoxy to it, and if you, if you, if you kind of go a little bit too far, and the logical conclusions that quantum physics is pointing, is pointing to, you can be ridiculed and ostracized by the scientific community, even lose your job. Yeah, the young professor without tenure could easily be uh, 
run out of town on the rail. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, just as easily oh. as an excommunicated priest. But it's, it's a it's a fantastic subject, and uh, we would love to. Uh, uh, but as you said, we could spend, uh, gosh, two weeks on quantum we physics. We really could, but we might have to bring them back because yeah. we're still getting questions. Peter, how can people find you? Because um, they're, they're going to want to read this book, and they're going to want to ask you questions if they can. <laughs> Well, um, uh, a couple things. Uh, the best place to go is my website, popeanalisa.com, P-O-P-E-A-N-A-L-I-S-A. That's one word, dot com. And um, uh, on the website in the um, uh, upper tabs, there's a way to get the book, but there's a lot of articles in there about quantum physics, the uh, the divided church, um, uh, Mary Magdalene, the lost women of the church, just a, a, a ton of information most of the most of the website actually is really devoted to the type of subjects we're talking to rather than to the book itself uh on the website i also post uh those places where i speak around the country i have a pretty active speaking schedule um i speak all over the country uh on different uh, topics and um you know many of the ones that we touched here but more in depth and it usually will have a, a listing there of the next uh, places that uh, i'm speaking the book is also available off of Amazon, although I think it's back ordered now. Um, it's it's kind of kind of catching on to cult status, and sometimes they've had some trouble keeping it in stock over at Amazon. So, Do you have an uh, ebook available? Uh, you know, not at this time. Okay. Um, there, there, there's a strategic reason for that right now, uh, partly to do with the fact that um, uh, I'm uh, I'm in talks with a, a major publisher who uh, is interested in. Uh, taking over the publication and the marketing of the book, and also with uh, a couple of um, uh, movie production companies, and in those circles, uh, the uh, having the book in in hardcover still means something there. So uh, eventually, I'm sure it will be out in ebook, but just not at this time. Yeah, and I did okay. check on Amazon; they uh, they're out of stock on the paperback, but they do have the hardback. And I've put links in the uh, chat room. We'll have links on our website. Uh, but it's good to get those links out there for our podcast listeners that might not have access right now, but would still like to find you. Uh, and when you uh, get this movie stuff sorted out, we'll, we'll, can we have you back? <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd be happy. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to be back on, on, on the show. I mean, that that's, uh, you know, like uh, just like the publishing world, um, it's uh, it's a slow burn process in, in, in the movie world. And the thing about it is that um, I'm trying to go about it very carefully because in in the world of film production, you can easily lose control of your own work. And uh, this work means a lot to me. Uh, it, it's not an ego thing, but there is a message and a, and a spiritual content to this book that I don't want to see lost in favor of the purely commercial elements of the book, because the book walks a very fine line between between you know being a, a, a page-turning thriller and and being you know a deeper spiritual text it it really has beautifully walked that line and i want to make sure that if it gets into the movies it retains that delicate balance and it doesn't you know go way over to the you know the, the popular mechanics side of things right and as right. Roger, i have much appreciation for um for that element and as somebody who's dabbled a little bit with movie making i also have much appreciation for your caution uh, and i wish you the absolute well best we have a luck in in doing um doing the best justice that you can to to this amazing piece of literature that you've helped to give birth to. Yeah, cuz they did it just recently to the secret. They there's two versions of that movie if 
you're curious if this is still a risk. Can we not talk about that? Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. Okay. It's such a shallow representation of the whole thing. I know, but the the fact that things were removed from even that is raw. Okay. (laughs) Peter, we love you. Off soapbox. Yeah. Off the soapbox. We appreciate um, you coming and t- sharing with us the time, and uh, we'll make sure uh, your links have already been put up through the to the chat room. But we will make sure that they're also available on the website. Great. Well, it was great being with you guys tonight, and I enjoyed the conversation. And thanks to everybody in the chat room and on the phone lines. Uh, uh, you make this thing happen. Uh, join us again on Thursday when Paul Gilbertson from Reach a Child is going to be with us, and uh, we're going to have an exciting time again. And we might have an announcement coming up in uh, the next few weeks too, guys, so yeah. stick around. Yes, exciting things are happening mm-hmm. when you Not- maintain your everyday connection. <coughs> Night all. Join Rick and Jean again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and be sure to like their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection. Worried you might miss an episode? Don't worry. Subscribe. Find us on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free just like your everyday connection. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.